You're listening to ClearCast, the real estate fintech podcast from Clear Capital. Each month, your co-hosts, Keenan Chen and Jeff Allen, will bring you compelling stories and revolutionary ideas from the people and companies at the intersection of real estate, finance, and technology. Want to be a guest on the show or have an idea for an episode? Email marketing at clearcapital.com and let us know. And now, here's the show. Well, welcome to ClearCast. Uh, so excited to get the season rolling um, and uh, very excited about uh, our guests here to, to kick it off. Um, today with us, we have Nate Levin, who is uh, the managing director at Parker 89. And uh, Parker 89 is the venture capital firm of First American Financial. Um, Nate's previously worked at BCG Digital Ventures, where he advised uh, Fortune 500 C-suite teams in mortgage, real estate, and financial services on digital strategy. And Nate's also made early stage venture investments during a stint at Primary Capital and worked closely with portfolio companies on product strategy. He began as a, his career as an operator and leading product management at four startups in telecom, database design, cybersecurity, and enterprise SaaS. So Nate has a really great overview of, of being both an operator and an investor and, and now running a VC. Thanks so much for being on the pod, Nate. Thanks for having me, Keenan, and very excited and, and, and honored to be joining you. Well, we, uh, you know, we had uh, been on a few different things, you know, recently and uh, you know, certainly seen, got a chance to see some of the great stuff that, that you've been up to, but wanted to tell everybody about who the heck you are. So like, you know, the, apart from your like professional resume there, like what got you into this space? Like, how did you get started in, in, in the industry and, and uh, why the heck are you interested in it? Yeah, so I guess I mean my 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 path started much more on the operator side in technology companies, right? And I I actually started my career in Siemens, the big German conglomerate, in their technology to business office is what they called it, which was essentially their their interface with startups. So how do you work with startups to most effectively when you're a multi-billion dollar international company? And I spent a lot of time studying different ways that corporations can most effectively work with early stage companies. You know, sometimes that's investment. Sometimes it's strategic partnerships. You know, sometimes it's through acquisition, JVs, et cetera. <clears throat> but it really kind of piqued my interest in this field of um, just big companies being so different from the DNA of a startup, yet uh, they're so complementary in different ways. And, and if you're a big company and you can figure out how to leverage what startups do well, um, and work with them effectively, you can gain a leg up on on your competition. So that kind of kicked off my journey. Um, and and you know, then kind of ironic now that again, like I am back at a at a big company uh, working with startups in their venture arm. Um, but between, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in kind of more traditional tech, right? Uh, mobile backend as a service, uh, cybersecurity, <clears throat> database design, and uh, just just learned a lot around how do you build kind of effective products uh, in those opportunities. We we rolled a, a company out of MIT that was in database design that was doing some really interesting things. 
but but none of this was related to real estate at all. Um, and I, I didn't know much about the real estate industry until I went to work at Boston Consulting Group. Um, and my first project was with First American. Uh, and I was like, well, what's what's title insurance? I have no idea. I've never heard of this before. <laughs> um, so pretty fast learning curve, <clears throat> understanding title insurance, but also more broadly, the, the real estate value chain. Uh, and looking at opportunities across the chain, um, and and we, I was involved in building Endpoint, which was which which is the the digital title and closing company for First American, right? And so um, that business was one that I worked on for a year. We we incubated it at BCG. We then helped First American roll it back into uh, First American as a business unit. Um, instead of joining First American then, I, I said, you know, I'll stay at BCG, but focus really on this real estate space. And so I spent a bunch of time with financial institutions, uh, looked at the mortgage space, uh, worked with one of the you know, two biggest players in, in mortgage capital markets for about a year and a half, looking at strategy with them and realized there was a ton of opportunity um, and, and a lot of frictions in the value chain. And uh, it's one thing to do that from a consulting standpoint, but I really wanted to kind of put my money where, you know, my mouth was, so to speak. And so uh, when my former colleague, Paul Hurst, had started an investment effort at First American, I decided it was time to join and, and start making investments. So that's kind of how I ended up where I, where I am. But yes, never thought I would be in, in real estate with more of the conventional tech background. We never end up exactly where we envision when we're kids. Uh, we always think we're going to be baseball players or celebrities or something, but here we are. Um, so, so Parker eighty nine is is pretty unique. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit more about them and uh, about what you guys are doing there in specific. It's it's a venture capital arm of First American, which, as you mentioned, is a really large established player. Um, what what does it mean to be the venture capital arm for First American, and and how does Parker eighty nine and First American strategically connect to one another? Yeah, so um, maybe I'll just start by by describing the name uh, of Parker eighty nine because I think a lot of that, that ties us directly back to First American. So it's it's actually an homage to First American's founder C. E. Parker and the origin of the company, which was eighteen eighty nine. Um, so. You know what's important to us in investing in startups and early stage companies is the founders, right? And we wanted to emphasize that with First American's own founding. Um, we're a small team of three people, so it's myself, Paul Hurst, who's also First American's chief innovation officer, and Tucker Riles, who who manages strategic relationships within our portfolio companies uh, and helps link them back to our business units and find strategic connections there. Um, we invest off balance sheet for First American, so uh, we're we're you know and we don't have a fund per se. We're investing directly into early stage tech companies and entrepreneurs in commercial and residential real estate, um, and this includes tech enabled brokerages, right, marketplaces, agent tools, lenders, mortgage software, <clears throat> fractional home ownership, um, like Picasso, for example. And our investment portfolio now sits at about $400 million of capital deployed uh, into more than 20 companies. Um, we focus mainly on series B and C stage companies. And this makes sense for us, right? Because you know we're not, we'd like to see some traction before we invest because it doesn't make sense to kind of leverage the partnership opportunities that First American can provide unless you found product market fit. 
you know, we can help with scaling, distribution, uh, things like that. But typically, the, those are challenges that B and C stage companies deal with. You know, we've also we we have done a handful of Series A rounds, and these will be opportunities where we just have a strong market thesis, and we've seen something come up where we're we we have a lot of conviction and confidence that that it will evolve into an opportunity. We'll be able to help with strategically over time. Um, and then I'll say like we we do lead rounds, right? So we've led about a quarter of the rounds uh, that we've done. Um, we'll take board seats where helpful, uh, and I think. You know, some of the companies we invest in value the fact that we are so focused specifically on prop tech that we have a lot of insights from the space. Um, but in terms of like how, you know, maybe answering your question more specifically, like, you know, why even start Park 89 and, you know, how does it relate back strategically to First American? I, I think there are three main things to touch on there. And the first is that, like, we realize real estate transactions are going to occur differently 10 years from now than, than they are today. And they did five years ago. Right. Um, and business model innovation, technological innovation is going to play a big role. So we want to get closer to these innovations and what's a better way to do that than investing in these companies. Um, and, you know, this is something that first American has like seen previously, right? We've seen shifts in the, in the, we've been around for 140 some years, right? We've seen shifts in the market. And so when like home builders and condo developers became a major refer of title transactions back in the 1960s, you know, we built new capabilities to support them. So now you're seeing prop tech companies kind of come up and start to become a new refer of transactions. How do we understand them better? And how do we build, you know, capabilities to meet their needs? And so that this is all part of that strategy. Um, and then secondly, you know, we have broad reach across the real estate transaction. There's a lot of ways we can help uh, and lean in with these companies we invest in. And then thirdly, of course, we look to make a financial return on our investments. So when we underwrite deals, we look at them strategically, but we also look at them against all the financial criteria that a typical VC firm would. Yeah. So. Um... I mean, that's awesome to have that kind of long view, you know, on it. Um, often, though, our our focus gets caught up in the short-term roller coaster that we've been on, um, which is in the past, you know, couple of years. There's obviously a huge amount of investment into prop tech and and um, um, a huge amount of momentum, and then that all changed, uh, you know, last year. Um, what are you know how does that affect the way that i mean certainly I, I, we've seen it from a transaction standpoint and from like you know um, what the opportunities are in the market but but uh what's your kind of overview of like what's what is the major changes that have happened and then how has that impacted the way that startups are able to operate over the past couple of years yeah there's there's been a lot of changes probably one of the more cyclical times we've seen right in, in the last kind of few decades um, we, we've been investing since 2019. So, I mean, I think the journey, our experience with the journey goes, you know, even further back than kind of just the last year, but certainly there's a story of 2020, 2021, 2022, or first half of 2022, right. Which is, we were doing a lot of deals. Um, we did a bunch of deals in 2021. Um, and we just, we had a bunch of investment theses. A lot of these companies were raising, uh, traction was really strong. Um, in retrospect, I'd say there's probably too much investment capital flowing in in those times. You, you know, you had a lot of new VC firms pop up. 
you had also in prop tech, a lot of businesses that came out that were relying heavily on refi oriented businesses or the transaction volume ones, right? A large percentage of those, those transactions were refi transactions, which are even more, um, even more sensitive to market cycles. Um, and of course, because of all the influx of capital, you had valuations being pushed up. So then of course, early 2022 ends and, you know, we kind of go into Q2 and interest rates go up and everything shifts. Um, and I think this had a, you know, a one, two punch effect on prop tech in one being valuations dropping significantly, you know, as interest rates reset everything. And then two, the higher interest rates leading to fewer transactions. Um, and so not only are you having valuations reset, but you also have companies' performances uh, you know, going down. Um, mm -hmm. revenue, revenue projections being revised from the optimistic projections of 20, you know, late 2020, 2021, and early 2022. Um, and so we've we've tightened up significantly in terms of how we deploy capital. Uh, you know, we were aggressive in deploying capital in 2021. And you know, over the last couple of years, we've been much more tight. Um, we've focused, we've changed our focus, I'd say, from then looking at new deals to how do we support our investments and the, the bets that we've made already. And I think that's that's a really important part of how we view our job, right? Like because we're a small team, when we make an investment in a company, we're there to support it through through its life cycle. Um, you know, strategically, but also in my role as a managing director of a venture, you know, fund or, or, or arm right, is like, how do I be a good board member and help them, you know, figure out how to conserve cash, pivot business models at times, get creative around fundraisings. Um, if it makes sense to pursue a sale, you know, how do we, how do we best help with that? So that takes a lot of time. And, uh, and with a small team, like, you know, we've shifted from looking at the new investments to spending a lot of time uh, with, with our companies. That, and that's not to say we're not looking at new investments. I think it's just, Right now in the industry, you're seeing you're seeing a lot of companies that have had decent traction still, but still have very high expectations around valuation, or have had you know poor traction, or maybe just really early stage, and we're not ready to to make that that bet yet. So, and the fact that you guys are you know first American is so heavily entrenched in all of the verticals where your companies are trying to grow into gives you the ability to create some additional new strategic value. Um, and I think that's unique as compared to just a typical VC. So you, obviously your world's changed a lot in the last year. What about the companies you're working with? What sorts of shifts in focus have they had to make? If you think of a company's focus in that raised in, uh, you know, in 2020 versus a, a company now. Yeah. I mean, the most obvious one is, is growth mindset to profitability mindset, right? It was growth at all costs. Um, it doesn't really matter how much, as much, how much cash you were burning to now, how do you maybe look more, more like a traditional um, real estate company in that you're trying to get to break even. Uh, and so it's, it's a lean mindset, um, you know, geographical in real estate, especially different geographies don't necessarily act uh, and transact in the same way, right? And so geographical expansion when you're investing as a VC is really important because you want to get scale and you want to leverage what you've built in one region, right, for other regions. But, but in prop tech, it's harder to do that because of regional differences. And so um, scaling back on geographical ambitions, right? Instead of 
saying, hey, we're going to launch into five new markets next year. Maybe we don't launch into any, and maybe we just focus on uh, how do we main, how do we get to profitability and have higher penetration in one in a, you know one market than in, than in five. Um, and and I think like putting the brakes on and realizing like you know the markets contracted, purchase market contracted what round like 35, 40 percent you know, refi down 85%, we're in a, a very different time than we were a year and a half ago. And the way that you operated as a company a year and a half ago is not appropriate for how you operate today. And it is like a big mindset shift, mindset shift right, for these companies because they've raised money and had a lot of success on that first model. Um, but I think there's a, there's a level of humility, right, that has to happen of right now the goal is to, you know, basically survive these challenging times in the market and the companies that do so will be able to grow on the back of a rebounding market. But if you don't make it through, you won't be there on the other side. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's like, so the, the businesses have had to change maybe the focus in that way, but some of the, the problems that they're trying to solve within real estate, those problems really haven't gone away, you know, at all. It's interesting even seeing like, um, you know, like what the FHFA is doing with their kind of fintech office and um, and seeing that like, well, loan closes are still taking 45 days or whatever on average. The loan costs are now up to $12,000, $13,000 to originate a, a loan. And so like the promise of tackling some of these big, big problems hasn't yet been been realized. But are are, are you seeing... It, 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 is there anyone or any models you're seeing that are still able to kind of attack some of these larger, like the real estate transaction and what that looks like, um, attack those problems? Any favorites, I guess? Yeah, I mean, those problems are still very real. And I, I think that's the the point around investing in this space is that, yeah, we've real, we're in a period of market cyclicality where things don't look great generally, right? Um and there's a lot of challenges, but the longer term 10 year horizon around these problem areas and solutions is still very relevant. And, you know, all the bets we've made in, in this space, we still believe in the value propositions that are there and the frictions, right? Um, those haven't shifted. So, so yeah, to your example, right? One of the big issues is, is mortgage costs, origination costs, loan production costs, right? Time period it takes to close a loan. Um, and those haven't improved. Costs have gotten worse. Uh, you know, the time to close hasn't really changed, you know, in the last kind of couple decades. Um, and yet we've had all this new technological innovation. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you improve upon those things? And that's an area where I, I spend a lot of time thinking about solutions. You know, one that I, I, I'm very excited about is loan origination software. I think there's a big opportunity to cut down on fulfillment costs. Fulfillment costs are roughly 25%, right, of that 12,500, you know, per loan costs. And, um, but there, you know, there's, there's a little bit more of a process for how those things are done. And, and there's, there's workflow that can be vastly improved upon how it's done today. Um, and, you know, so we have, we have an investment in a company called Vesta. It's building a new LOS. Uh, it's going to be, you know, workflow plus system of record um, and and highly configurable, right? Um, more of an open ecosystem approach in terms of partnering with multiple 
you know, being open to multiple types of um, integrations and and other vendor relationships, right? That can plug into them, uh, but also making it really easy to incorporate automation. And once you've you've created this framework for this workflow, right, it becomes a lot easier to cut out, you know, uh, different manual steps or combine them together. Have you know an inbox approach, for example, for loan processors, processors, processors. So they're going through like you know each task one at a time related to a task flow rather than to a specific file. Um, those are just some examples of how you know there's some obvious areas for improvement. I think there's there's also areas right with OCR technology. Um, underwriting automation is another big area. There's some plug and play solutions coming out now in underwriting automation that can be adopted pretty fast and should be able to eat big improvements uh, for originators. And then of course, AI, right? And you know everybody's in the VC community is very excited about AI, uh, generative AI and the potential there. And I think there is a lot of potential in in mortgage too. and and for example, you know, pulling in, Fannie, Freddie, seller servicer guides um, and making the process of searching through those guides and asking questions to those guides instant, essentially. Um, or, but, it, but I think it's going to be mostly in terms of helping personnel make, you know, making them more efficient than it will be replacing anyone at this point. Hmm. Um, so, so we've talked a lot about kind of how things have changed in the last couple of years and, and, you know, what, what companies you're most excited about going forward five years from now. What do you think the market looks like, both from a VC funding standpoint, as well as the progress as an industry you've made towards some of those metrics you're talking about with loan costs, for example? Yeah. Well, sorry, there's one more, there's one more opportunity area. I just, since Keenan. Oh, please do. Talk about, which I, which I think is housing supply, right? Which is oh, like, yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's another big and obvious one, but, and the inventory shortage is what's creating a lot of this stagnation in the housing market today. Um, We're millions of homes short, you know, I think there's going to be ways to build homes faster and easier and cheaper in the future. Mm. And the idea of productizing the home, I think is, is a big central thesis of mine to this area. There, There are things, right. Technologies in terms of actually, you know, building the home much faster, 3d printing, you know, what icon is doing, which I think is really interesting. But there's also this idea of, can you just make a home that's good enough, like more of a, you know, a skew level product, mm-hmm. right, uh, on, a, on a broader scale that still meets what people's needs are in relation to, you know, I want this, this, and this feature, I might want, you know, a home, uh, not in a, in a development, but like, you know, in an infill location in a more urban or suburban environment. So we made a bet in a company called Welcome Homes in that space, which I'm excited about. Um, which is you think of like a car builder, you go online, you, you, you find a plot of land, you pick the home you want, you pick the features and finishings in the home. And, um, you know, and then they give you essentially a guaranteed price to go get a loan out to go build that home. Hmm. Um, and that's just making something which was previously a very custom process a lot faster and easier. Um, and so solutions like that, I think, are, are also exciting and we're going to continue to keep our eye out for for other opportunities in that space yeah I mean, that's that's super needed because um it, it, it's wild to see you know we just saw um, home prices um start to increase again it was our appreciation saw that you know turn from um 
declined at the end of last year to kind of after the first quarter this year, it just rebounded and started to go back up again, at least nationally, right? I mean, there's still some some regional areas that are still um, seeing home prices. prices are going to go up if there's not enough inventory. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's only like 500,000 listings on the market right now for the whole country. So it's uh, uh, it's definitely a problem worth worth tackling there on the, on the supply side. But but yeah, Je Jeff, you had a question though about sorry, Jeff, the, the vision of the oh. future. <laughs> Jeff's thinking bigger about the about the. <laughs> well, I don't think it's possible to think bigger than the problem of housing supply. So that's a good transition. <laughs> yeah. What, so what what does the world look like five years from now, both from uh, kind of a VC funding standpoint and uh, industry progress standpoint? Yeah. And and which AI should I be like making happy right now so that I'm in a good spot five years from now? That <laughs> <laughs> doesn't go after you. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, look, I I think um, prop tech is going to take time to transform the industry. So if, if you told me five years is going to be transformational, I'm not sure I would agree. I mean, I do think AI has some potential to, to speed up a lot of these transformations, but you know, it's still early. There's a lot to be proven out. There's a lot of ethical concerns that need to be discussed and figured out. So um, our, our approach is let's wait and see on some of this stuff first. But in general, prop tech is going to be slower moving, I think, than enterprise SaaS and other areas uh, that VCs typically invest in, in their funds and expect, you know, 10 year uh, return horizons around. Um, and I think, and I think part of that is just because of a real estate transaction takes a lot of time, right? Um, you also have a lot of players involved in the transaction and stakeholders and, Historically, the transaction has always been based on relationships. And so trust is, is a key component. And so anybody, even if you're building a better technological solution, you still have to go build trust with the stakeholders who are involved. And so you might have a much faster um, purchase mortgage loan that you can originate. But if the real estate agents don't believe it and they don't sell it to you know, the end buyer, then you're going to have problems with adoption. Hmm. Um, and those things happen. It just happens over a longer time period, right? We've seen real estate agents get used to working with Zillow. Um, you know, and we, we've seen a number of these transformations occur, uh, but it's not like scaling at the same rate as traditional VCs might expect. Um, and then, and then if you're selling in, you know, let's say you're building loan origination software, you know, capital market software for, for mortgage companies, like you're, you're selling into mortgage companies and of course, those timelines take a long time. You know, those sales cycles are slow. So I think we just need to have realistic expectations around what we're going to see in five years. You know, I would say 10 years could look a lot more interesting, right, than, than five years. And um, I do think you'll have, I do think it'll be a lot faster and easier to, to transact on a property. I mean, the goal is to make it as fast and as reliable, you know, and as certain as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, we as a title company have an operationally intensive business. And that's, that's something that internally we spend a lot of time thinking about um, and how do we support the rest of the ecosystem in a, in a, as instantaneous as possible close. Yeah. Um, I also think just in terms of the industry, you'll see a lot of consolidation of prop tech companies that are out there now, you know, not all of them are going to be able to raise further rounds of capital and, uh, 
they still have value and hopefully they'll be snapped up by good partners or they'll merge together to combine balance sheets and, uh, you know, cut down on GNA expenses, operational expenses. So there is value in having scale. And, and if there's inorganic ways to make that happen, I think we're going to see a lot of that over the next few years as well. I mean, that's almost kind of the silver lining or the or the the light of hope, I guess, that I'm hearing from certain, especially like early stage startups is that expectations are a lot lower right now. So if you're starting right now and you've got a good idea, there's this feeling that there's like a longer runway um, to um, to start with, you know, right now, as opposed to having started in 2021 oh, or, sure. or something. It's a much better time. It, I'd, you know, I'd much rather be starting a company right now than I would be, you know, a series C stage company or D, you know, trying to raise. It's it's tough. And and there's also just a, a, a lack of capital investing in those later stages at the moment. I think there's a lot of pre-seed and seed stage investors in prop tech who are deploying capital still fairly aggressively and are really excited about what they're seeing. Um, and it's also just easier when you're earlier stage, you don't have to show revenue numbers and profitability as fast. So you have more flexibility on some of those things that are you know troubling some of the later stage companies today. So a final question, and this is a really probably the most important question we've asked on this entire podcast. <laughs> Ever. You have a master's in history from Oxford. <laughs> Did you hear that British accent? Was that realistic sounding? It was right on. It was, <laughs> I felt like I was back in England. Awesome. Okay, so history degree from Oxford. Sounds fancy. Um, can you tell us your favorite historical fun fact or your favorite period in history to learn about? Yes. Um, so... <laughs> I guess this, this is going to sound funny, but I actually studied American history at Oxford, uh, <laughs> which which my college friends continue to make fun of me for uh, to this day. So is the British version of American history just that they're mad that they lost to us? <laughs> well, so this is the interesting thing, right? Is like, you know, growing up in the US, you you learn the American narrative. And I was like, well, what's, what's the parent, you know, country's narrative? And what did they... What did they think about everything that transpired in the U.S.? And so I, I kind of just wanted a different perspective on it because um, I also studied it undergrad. And so I thought, OK, well, maybe I go to the parent country to study it for my graduate degree. And, um, you know, I, I like what I ended up writing my dissertation actually on the vice presidency as an institution. Hmm. Um, and uh, and so my guess, my fun fact is. I looked a lot at John Adams and what he, what precedents he set for the vice presidency, similar to kind of like what George Washington did for the presidency. And what I found out was that Adams, Adams came in with this idea of the vice president being essentially like a co, like a consulship, like in ancient Rome. So he thought he was going to have similar, you know, day-to-day -day powers that Washington might have and that they'd really almost govern together. And he'd do all these things, like he would come to Senate meetings, like in a grand carriage and wear a sword and all this stuff that like, literally we had just broken away from the monarchy, you know, to get away from. And it created a lot of backlash and he created a lot of enemies uh, in Philadelphia, which was the capital at that time. And he actually ended up leaving after three years, he, he went to Braintree, Massachusetts, where his farm was and spent the last five years of, you know, Washington's presidency, essentially farming. Um, and had very little involvement in the day-to-day -day of the government. So he went from one extreme to the other. And there's wow. letters from Washington saying, hey, like, 
you know, if, if, if Adams was around in Philadelphia, we would have invited him to this meeting, but he's not. So uh, I guess we'll just move on without him. So it set a lot of precedent for, you know, the vice presidency being a weaker institution for 150 years or so. Wow. Anyway, that's probably more than you wanted to learn about. I have no idea. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we would have a much stronger vice presidency if uh, that guy didn't want to just chill on a farm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and yet we still make fun of the vice president for not showing up more and and uh, being more involved in stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You could. You could. I mean, there were other vice presidents who did you know suspect things like Aaron Burr uh shooting hamilton right so there's that there's was bad that's of the institution not having the, the that was less death. chill that was less chill more, more suspect for sure <laughs> <laughs> awesome. well nate thank you so much for joining us and, and telling us about what's going on at parker 89 and and uh i hope it's five years not 10 years that we see transformational that would be a good problem to have yeah it's going to happen and we believe it will happen and it yeah we'll just see when it all transpires so but we're excited about this space and, and it was great to talk to both of you jeff and keenan thanks a lot yeah thank you nate appreciate it